you tell me a little bit about your background just as an artist and where you're coming from? Yeah, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. Both of my parents were artists and both of my brothers were artists. So I really a very deep background. I kind of didn't have any other any other role model, any other kinds of role models. You know, maybe I should have been an engineer because I used technology so much. Yeah, my father was a symphony conductor and wow. my mother was the poet laureate of Texas in 2012. I don't know, I kind of feel like I have some big shoes to fill. Um, I feel like that's unusual to come from a family of artists like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, and it starts even before my um, my parents. My grandmother was in a vaudeville troupe. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, like family musical troupe. And they went all over during the 20s and 30s, uh, you know, depression time, wow. playing, entertaining people in the Midwest. Yeah, so that's kind of where it started, I guess. And I went to Trinity University right after mm-hmm. high school. I grew up in McAllen and then uh, went to Trinity here in San Antonio. Originally, my major was journalism, broadcasting, and film uh, because I had done photography and film in high school. And then I added the art major after I met my mentor, a guy named Bill Bristow. Still alive. He's 83 years old. We have a good relationship. I'm very happy to, you know, to still know him and be in touch with him. That's great. Trinity has a really great photography program, don't they? Yeah, uh-huh. They do. Now they do. Back then, it was kind of an afterthought, sort of part of the journalism department, you know, a lot of darkroom stuff. Of course, that was back in the in the early 80s. So, you know, digital wasn't even a, a thought. Do you still work in the darkroom? No, I haven't had a darkroom for 20 years or so. Wow. Uh, I was a very early adopter of digital technology. Uh, I do like the darkroom. I mean, I, it's fun, you know, to watch the image come up. And mm-hmm. I like all the machines and all the chemicals and but it's really pretty bad for the environment. You know, it's not uh, it's not that repeatable. So you make one print and it's great, and then you make another print and it's different. So at least with digital technology, you have the certainty of all the prints being the same, and you have a lot more control over it. So I think That's it's a an interesting take. These days, you know, there are a lot of young people who are just discovering the dark room, and and it's it is kind of magical. I you know I'll agree, it's kind of fun. There's definitely some drawbacks to it, too. It's become what they call an alternative process, like cyanotype. We used to call those things alternative processes. But now there's the regular film silver imagery is an alternative. And, and that's okay. But I just find, especially for commercial work, there's no, there's no substitute for a digital image. What did it look like when you were an early adopter? What kind of camera and technology were you using? Had a scanning camera that was I think it was the first digital camera in San Antonio at least used commercially it was for sure and it was a fairly high resolution camera because it you know it took some time for the image to to scan across so I could do like a full page magazine ad with that camera it was about 24 megabytes I think which is you know nothing compared to cameras today it also kind of instilled in me this idea that the image didn't have to be created all at once. It wasn't a snapshot. You know, it oh. wasn't a slice of time. It was a series of images that were built up. The images being one pixel slices at a time that were built up over time. That eventually morphed into my invention, the slit scan camera, which I have a patent on. It's been an evolving, you know, project over the years. Tell me how you got started making that. It sounds like it came from the scan camera. Yeah, I I had old machines lying around, scanners, and 
of old movie cameras, fax machines, printers, and I like to take mm-hmm. things apart. And I put this thing back together in kind of a Frankenstein way. It became a, a slit scan camera, which is basically a scanner, the guts of a scanner inside a camera body that you can take out into the world. So it's, How big is it? Well, I can show it to you. You want me to show it to you? Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, That's such so interesting. I'll show you the first one. So this is, this is my very first one. Wow. And uh, see, it's an old Bell and Howell movie camera. Mm-hmm. And it lands on it and a motor, and the motor spins around. It's rotating on the theoretical nodal point of the lens, so that doesn't change the perspective as you, as you move it around. And it has this goofy connection at the bottom, and I had a whole giant suitcase full of the electronics. Did you make all of the electronic elements yourself and kind of figure that out? Um, in the beginning, I just, you know, cobbled together different other machines. And then eventually, yes, I did hire some engineers to help me do it right. This is the latest uh, incarnation of, of the camera. This one doesn't pivot, you know, it just sits in one spot. The lens shoots its image back onto the sensor, and the sensor is just a line. One single column of pixels, well, in three colors, red, green, and blue. So there's really three columns. It's calibration door here, battery monitor, and it hooks up to uh, a computer like a laptop. still requires the laptop, and so the latest one. What kind of lens is on it? This is a 14-millimeter wide-angle okay. Yeah. Put any kind of lens on it you want. I did my undergrad for photography, so I'm kind of geeking out right now. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, you can put any kind of lens on you want. I often do a telephoto lens if I need something a little bit farther away. And I've seen the work that comes out of these cameras with your slit scan photography. You have it on your website. Super unique. You don't see anything like it. <laughs> it's sort of a time exposure because it mm-hmm. takes time to get from one side of the picture to the other. It's not a, it's not a snapshot or a slice of time. But it's, it's pure photography. I mean, I'm not manipulating the image in any way. I'm, just, I'm actually taking away things from a two-dimensional image, re- replacing the, the X dimension or the horizontal dimension with the dimension of time. Okay, that's a really great point. I was looking at some of your previous installations, and you deal with a lot with time. What kind of interests you about that? I, I really don't know where that interest came from, but perhaps my musical background has something mm-hmm. to do with it. A lot of photographers I've, I've found uh, are also musicians. That was his career as a musician, mm-hmm. and he taught us piano, and he would write operas, and we would sing in the operas, you know, so there was always this idea of time and, and people all doing things in synchrony, you know, and that, maybe it came from there. I don't know, but the, this idea of making art with a machine is kind of an interesting thing. Like, musicians have to have this machine to even if it's their voice, you know, that's kind of a machine. And then photographers have the actual apparatus of the camera and the darkroom and so forth. So, yeah, I got interested in machines and art a long time ago. Speaking of machines and art, how are you using technology today? Can you kind of walk me through some of your more recent installations? I know they're light-based, sound-based, and motion-sensitive. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty wide spectrum of how I use technology. I am very interested in technology of all kinds, even old technology, like Leonardo da Vinci-style machines, clocks with gears. I, I think there's something kind of magical about understanding how the world works 
through simple illustrations like pendulum or or gearing where you can actually see the gears meshing with each other and how the ratios are combining you know to to make a kind of a calculator that's what a clock is it's a, it's a calculator I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about the good right here. We're good right here. And it seems like a lot of technical background work. Uh-huh. This piece was a commission piece for the AT&T Center here in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. It's where the Spurs play. These, these, you know what these little puffballs are, right? They're, I think you uh, told me they're moss. Moss, yeah, like ball moss. They call it moss. It's not really moss. It's a little plant that has roots and flowers and everything. It grows on oak trees around here. And it also grows on like telephone lines. So because it's the AT&T Center, I thought that's appropriate that we can have something that even grows on a telephone line. You know, it doesn't people around here think that it's a parasite. It's mm-hmm. not really a parasite. It's it's an epiphyte. In other words, it gets all of its nutrition just from the air, from dust. Maybe if the birds poop on the wires, you know, it'll use that to grow with. Mm-hmm. It's very hardy. And I just thought it was kind of a... A nice little symbol of San Antonio. Sometimes San Antonio has an inferiority complex with Houston or, or Dallas or Austin. Think this is a symbol of us being proud of what we've got here and just kind of staying in one place. And we're good right here. It's a beautiful sentiment. So when you walk up to the piece and, and put your hand close to the glass, it shoots out rays of color. It's the old Spurs colors. They're all gray and silver now and black. Everybody, all the fans still like the old Fiesta colors, they call them. And it's motion sensitive. So right down here in this little ledge, there are sensors that detect when your hand comes close to the glass. So it's not really a touch thing. It works. It works that way. And, and what do you use? What kind of sensors are those? Are they just something you can buy at Home Depot? Not Home Depot, they're, but they're infrared sensors used for robots and stuff like that. How did you get started working with those? I think my first project with infrared sensors was university hospital. I wanted to be able to detect motion uh, in a fairly narrow range. So when people walk by, it triggers the sensor. These are acrylic panels that you have mounted on the wall? These are glass panels, and they're each cut in a very unique shape because this hallway is curving and descending. And so I thought it kind of looked like a xylophone. Each, each one is kind of like a note, a note of color. I kind of hear that beautiful song playing. Did you also choose the music for this? Yeah, I, I, I recorded the music. Uh-huh. Did you make it yourself? Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. You do it all. <laughs> what was your first installation of this scale, your first kind of large-scale public-facing work? Uh, this was the biggest one so far, 2015, I think. My first public work was something that I call the corn crib. You had on my site. I did. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. It was a project that came about in a, in a strange way. There was a place here in San Antonio called the Land Heritage Institute, which is 1,200 acres of old farmland that they were going to flood and make. They're going to put up a dam and flood it and make a reservoir south of San Antonio, which. All the citizens of San Antonio thought that was a terrible idea. Every drop of oil that hit the ground uh, would end up in this reservoir. So the citizens of San Antonio voted it down twice, and the developers you know, kept bringing it, bringing it back up. But finally, they got the message and 
1,200 acres is now a, a preserve, a land preserve. And it has some old buildings on it. One of is this corn crib from the 1800s. And it's the original stone structure, not put together with any mortar. It's just kind of mud and stone. You can see this right here. And the thing that holds it together is the roof structure. So if the roof ever came off, we'd be in big trouble. Mud would just wash out from between the stone. Anyway, it's a rather fragile a little structure, and they actually grew corn and stored it in there. And so I thought it'd be nice to kind of rehabilitate it and, and symbolically fill it back up with corn. I took these pictures of corn, uh, field corn, that's what it's called, and just an amazing, amazing variety of colors and gorgeous. shapes. This is all kind of genetic engineering, like early genetic engineering, you know, Corn is not a natural, doesn't occur naturally in the world. We made it. Humans made it by selecting, uh, you know, it started out as this little grassy thing in South mm-hmm. America, and they kept breeding the, the biggest ones and then the biggest ones of that. And so after many, many, many generations, we have what what we know now as corn. It's uh, That's so it's, interesting. It's a really interesting project. So this is with my Slithcan camera, rotating the corn. So it's like a panoramic picture. In reverse, it's the the subject rotating, peeling it peeling it out flat. It looks like are these backlit? They're backlit. That's right. Yeah, technology here on the roof, right over here. I have a solar panel. This is completely off the grid. There's no electricity anywhere close to this place. Feeds into the a couple of batteries that are under the stairs, and the batteries are the electricity comes down these support wires too, and it's all low voltage, so. You can grab a hold of them and you don't even feel the, the LED panels. How did uh, you think to use a solar panel? Well, it was kind of the only solution. If I wanted to make a, a chapel <laughs> to corn, right? If I wanted to make uh-huh. a chapel and I wanted to have it lit in there, that was pretty much my only option. I so, just love the way your brain works. I would have never even considered a solar panel <laughs> in this field. And so it's like, you know, this, these are like stained glass windows, right? And it's actual sunlight coming through the windows, but it's just been filtered through the solar panel and then in the battery and then came back out. Yeah, that was a fun project. That was 2009, so that kind of started my public art career. I used to joke with people and say that I was specializing in public art that nobody would ever see because <laughs> this thing is way out in the country and uh, you have to go by appointment, you know, there's a lock on the door. Is it still there? It's still there, yeah, still there. Uh, over 10 years later, rehabbed it a little bit. You know, I go every year and sweep it out. Transparencies have lasted longer than I thought. What's next for you? I know, I think you showed me an installation you're working on that's involved with a clock. Maybe at a university, am I remembering? Yeah, that that's right. And this is the clock in Nebraska. It's mm-hmm. more like a regular clock in that the, these are the minutes and these are the hours. And the seconds kind of sweep around, the green ones. That's like mm-hmm. a full minute, and then they turn yellow in the next minute. Attached to a science building at Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. See, this is like the second hand. It's just approaching. Oh, I see. What do you use to keep the clock connected to time? How does it know what time it is? It's connected to an internet connection. So it's always okay. going out every day to the server and correcting itself. It knows what time it is, or if you ever unplug it and plug it back in and go to the server, check and see what time it is. And with the lights, are they just LEDs that you've programmed? Uh-huh. It's, okay. a, it's a special board that I created. It's a hexagonal board. 
And so they fit together. So there's one board in here, there's three in this one, and there's like nine in this one. So they kind of nest together. I'd love to see the back of it. It's just a, a jumble of wires back there. I'll show you some of the robots that pick up the chips and stick them in place, and then they run the whole thing through an oven. Oh, my gosh. Pretty cool. They do this in New Bron- in uh, uh, San Marcos. Do you uh, use local fabricators for most of yeah, your work? Whenever I can, yeah. Yeah, whenever I can. I buy some parts, some from China, some from the U.S. And I, if I have to do anything custom, I try to make it here. I either make it myself, I have a CNC machine, and mm-hmm. I can actually use that to make circuit boards. This one actually needed needed a lot of boards, number one, <laughs> so I didn't mm-hmm. want to do them all myself. And the precision required to create this board was more than I could handle. How did you learn about circuit boards? They don't teach you that in art school. No, no, no. And especially in the 80s. In YouTube Universe, that's pretty much you just have to jump in and do it unless you get an electrical engineering degree. And if you do that, you're probably not going to be an artist. <laughs> A lot of artists, you know, work in teams these days, too. You, you know, they'll have an electrical engineer on their team. You can get boards created. Once you design it, you can have it created and it's ready in an incredibly short amount of time. You can do lots of prototyping. That is something that has changed over the years. I cut the, you know, the structure of how the tubes were going to attach to the metal. This is what the circuit boards look like. Each one of these little things is the LED. So, I don't know, it's got 30 LEDs on each one. And they, they kind of nest together. So, the second hands is just one. And, the, like I said, the minute hands are three of them. And what are these? These are just little LED lights? Uh-huh. These are LEDs. And a place to plug in the different connections between the boards. Mm-hmm. This is the, the back of the thing in the in the factory. And I wow. like this because it's like a it's like a pinhole camera. So this is kind of an image of the the outside that's being projected in a crazy sort of way. Pick in place is what it's called. This is so cool. <laughs> Going and grabbing oh, the chips. And it just pops them into the board. Sticks them on the board just with kind of like with paste, solder mm-hmm. paste. And then this whole board runs through an oven. So the chips are just like sitting there on, on paste. You know, you could go and swish them around if you wanted to. The, the solder paste then uh, actually solders them onto the board with high heat. And do the chips dictate the colors when they light up? The chips have three colors in them, red, green, and blue. You use a little driver board to direct the current to uh, whichever color you want to show up. So all the boards are capable of 16 million colors. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you have a lot going on. I do have one more question. Sure. Have there been any challenges or unexpected surprises or anything really fun that you've encountered in all of your years of making really interesting artwork? (laughs) That's a pretty big question. I know. <laughs> uh, challenges for sure. Learning what your limits are, learning what kind of job you want to take on for your whatever manufacturing capabilities that I have. Letting other people do some of the work, that was a big lesson that I learned. Not trying to do everything myself. Yeah. I, and I'm still learning that. I still love doing prototypes and things like that. So I try to 
Uh, I try to get get all my fun in, in the prototypes and then hand it over to somebody else. I don't know. It seems like you really have an idea and do all of the groundwork to figure out how to make it possible. Yeah, well, I, that. I mean, that's true. You know, I could never have made these circuit boards mm-hmm. as efficiently as, as they did. Are there any other questions? Is there anything you thought I'd ask that I didn't? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to show you the, the, uh, the other big clock that I did. Yeah, please. At Charles Schwab in Austin. It's just huge. It's just, yeah, talk about coming up to your limits. Uh, we had to, this gear is so big, we had to glue this together in place on the floor down here. So we couldn't get oh, it to wow. the door. We didn't have a door big <laughs> enough. Yeah, I wanted to do something that was completely mechanical. And I even like it without the lights. They they wanted something with lights, so I put put LEDs in. People can walk up the stairs and wind it right here, and that winds um, this weight and it pulls it up. So again, it's kind of old fashioned technology, but spread out on the wall so that you can see all of the. And so it moves, it rotates. Yeah, it tells time. And how did you fabricate each of these? Were they just well, CNC? Yeah, the gears are all cut out, of, uh, and I had that done in Austin. Again, I made the prototype. I made a half-size version of this and put it up in my studio here. And then we did the full-size one in Austin. Okay. And this chain, is it just like a metal chain, or is it uh-huh. anything yeah, special? Yeah, it's a regular chain. It's showing some wear right now, so I may have to go, you know, replace it. I wish mm-hmm. I had a lot of things I wish I had done differently. You know, now that it's done, I've been working on it for a while. It required a lot of maintenance going forward, and I even changed a few things design-wise as we as we went along. This is the kind of the heart of it, the, the beating heart of the clock, and pendulum mm-hmm. swings back and forth. So there's a lot of mechanical stuff going on right here. I learned a lot, and I wish I had done some things differently, but it's fine. What would there's you a, change? Well, just some technical things. Basically, making something this big, you have to account for the fact that you're stopping and starting this thing every second. Yeah. And that's a lot of weight to be moving around. Mm-hmm. And so you get some real impact when you stop and start the gear every time. On a, on a small, like a wristwatch or, you know, a desk clock, mechanical clock, you don't notice those things because the mass is so small. When mm-hmm. you get up to this scale, things things change and you need some other dampening mechanisms, you know, to help mm-hmm. take care of that. There's another piece, a companion piece for this right here. When people walk by, they're photographed by a slit scan camera. Or as they wind the clock, they're they're photographed. So now we're looking from the clock mm-hmm. down to the screen. And as people walk by, there's a little camera right here that photographs them and displays a slit scan image of them on the screen. And it's temporary. It does not save. So it's mm-hmm. the constantly changing. That is really cool. I bet the people that work there love just pacing back and forth in front of yeah, it. I hope they do. I've made this little video to kind of explain how it works. This is kind of an event center, so they'll have large groups of people come through every once in a while. I love that you can wind the clock. How did you think to add that? Well, I knew it was going to have to be wound somehow, so I figured okay. I would make that the interactive part. And also, you can set the time. So, if it's you know if it's off time, then that's part of the deal. People will be able to go and set the time. Accuracy was not really something I was after. It it, it is pretty accurate, but it also has some some slop in the gears. So, 
That, that's part of the deal. I wanted everybody to be responsible for keeping the time. It's so interesting how your work just continues to refer back to time and photography and mm -hmm. how photography is also related to time. They're yeah. just such an inter interconnected concept. I love that you tie them together so beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. It comes naturally. I, I don't I don't really think about, oh, I'm going to do a piece about time now. You know, it doesn't. I just do what I like. And then I, I all of a sudden realize that it's having to do with other subjects that I've been interested in for years. I feel like we all have a thing we always refer back to. Yeah. <laughs> with art, you know, you come back to a common theme in your work and you don't even realize yeah. when it's happening sometimes. My mom used to, you know, on a rainy day or something, she'd have this drawer. We called it the make it drawer. And she would just throw a bunch of old stuff in there that, you know, old uh, eyeglasses and marbles and, you know, jars and, and broken clocks and things like that. And I remember, remember going in there and taking a broken clock and opening it up, mm -hmm. fiddling with it a little bit, putting it back together, it actually worked. Wow. <laughs> so maybe it was at that point that I said, hey, I've got some ability here to figure out how things work. And that's probably where it all started, frankly. That was even before I was a photographer. That's such a great story. Maybe I'll call this episode Anson Seal, Master of Time. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your work with me and telling me just about how you make all of these installations. You're welcome, Allison. Thanks for asking. Mm -hmm.